My name is Pat Husky, and I serve as the director of women here at FBC. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I may too come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before them until it, uh, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Please be seated as we pray. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for the good news of Jesus who came as a baby, and then we wait for him to come as King of Kings, and forever we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, good morning. We're in uh, Matthew, Matthew chapter 2, light in the dark, light in the dark. There's a flashlight, not here, I don't have it with me, uh, but there's a flashlight, it's called the MS-18. Some of you goes, oh yeah, the MS-18, really nice. How bright is the MS-18? At one point, whatever point it was that I was reading this article, at one point it was the brightest flashlight you could buy, it provided... 100,000 lumens of uh, light. That's bright. Uh, that's really, really bright. So by comparison, the sun provides 98,000 lumens of light per square uh, meter. Uh, so we might say this, even our brightest flashlight can provide just about the same amount of light that our sun provides on a single you know, square meter or square yard. That's how bright the sun is. That's pretty bright. So what I want us to think about with that in mind is this, that the light is oftentimes easiest uh, to see in the dark. And that's what is interesting about this account of the, the magi or the wise men. They see a star, which means in all likelihood, it doesn't say, but in all likelihood they saw this star uh, at night or at least at, at dusk. And the light in the dark is easiest to see in the dark. And we have two ideas I want us to think about from this account this morning is, number one, is we want to find the light, and that light is God. And secondly, we want to recognize that God is the one who intentionally invades the darkness on our behalf for our benefit with the good news. So we're going to have two parts of this message today. The first part is going to be all in our Old Testament, and we're going to understand what the Bible means 
uh, by the light of God. And then we will take that understanding and look briefly at uh, the account of the, the Magi. Light in the dark. Find light in God. It's important to understand what light means. There was a a movie, and it had this character in it, and this character, this guy, had, had not, wasn't familiar with cars. His background was he wasn't, he wasn't familiar with cars, driving cars, rules of the road, and he had met this uh, other person, and they were driving around the countryside, and his learning of how to drive the car was simply by observing her driving. I'm, I'm not saying anything about women drivers. She was a, a woman in the movie. It has nothing to do with it, okay? I, I could just see some of you. Oh, no. She, that's just her character was a woman. And so anyway, she finally decided she was very tired. She said, well, do you want to drive? Have you figured it out, so to speak? Oh, yeah, I think I can handle this. And so he's driving, and they come up to a stoplight, and the light turns yellow, and he accelerates and makes the car go as fast as it possibly can go. And she goes, and they fly through the intersection and nearly have an accident. She goes, what are you doing? And he said, well, I, that was my understanding of how these lights work. Green mean go, means go. Red means stop. Yellow means go very fast. And, and he had misunderstood what the light means based on what he had observed. It's important to understand, what, is the, what does the light mean when we look at the Bible and tells us about the light of God? Here's what I want to show us from uh, some places in the Older Testament, is God is light, which means his agenda is this. Number one, he is holy. He is right. He is good. He is pure. So number one, the light of God we want to understand refers to God is holy right and good. Secondly, light indicates he wants us to know him and to be known. The, the light is where we know and are known, the place of fellowship, the place where we are able to see. If you don't want to be known, you hide in the dark. If you want to be known and know others, you come into the light. So the light of God helps us to understand that he is, number one, holy, and then number two, he wants relationship where he is both known and knows us. Genesis chapter 1, verse 14. You're probably familiar with this from the Scripture. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, and also, by the way, the stars. God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, separate the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning on the fourth day. So God creates light. God, light was God's idea. So God here institutes lights, and He institutes the seasons and the days and everything else, and He wants us to understand this is good, and this is telling something about God and His nature. He wants us to see and to know and to experience Him. But then, of course, we, as Kylie Joel already referenced, how, does, how do Adam and Eve respond to the good thing God has done? They rebel against God. They take the forbidden red Christmas ornament. That, and now, we, now I have these red Christmas ornaments. I'm going to tell the kids to stay away from them things will ruin the earth. So they, they disobey God to seek to be like God, and God then kicks them out of the Garden of Eden to the east. And now they no longer experience that fellowship and connection with God because of their sin. Their rebellion has separated them from God, 
and His goodness and His kindness. Something has now come in between humankind and God, and it is our rebellion. What's interesting then is God then tells the people of Israel much later to build a tabernacle. And He wants to communicate something about His relationship with people, His desire, His agenda in His tabernacle. Exodus 27 says this. Exodus 27. Some of these verses will be up on the screen. I've just told Al back there, try to keep up. Here we go. Here's one of the commands about the tabernacle. You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light, that a lamp may be regularly set up to burn in the tent of meeting outside the veil that is before the testimony, that is the Ark of the Covenant. Aaron and his son shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. So there's a lamp, and it's to be tended, and it's to be kept burning. There should be a light in the tabernacle. It's repeated again over in Leviticus 24. The Lord spoke to Moses, and he said, Command the people of Israel to bring, to bring uh, you pure olive oil from beaten olives for the lamp, that a light may be kept burning regularly outside the veil of the testimony in the tent of meeting. Aaron shall arrange it from evening till morning before the Lord regularly. It shall be a statute throughout uh, your generations. He shall arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold before the Lord regularly. So what happens is in the tabernacle, there was a light. It was intended to be the place where fellowship with God was restored was a place of light. What's really, really interesting about the tabernacle is the way it was decorated with palm trees and pomegranates was intended to be sort of in the wilderness, a new Garden of Eden. This was the place they had been kicked out of the Garden of Eden because of their sin. And now you come back into the tabernacle in the ministry of the priest, and you once again have communion with God. How do you have communion with God? Through sacrifice and faith. Trust God, and by faith we say God has made a way for us to have a relationship with Him. And so if I have a relationship with God, where am I? I am in His presence, in His tabernacle. And what is happening in the tabernacle? A light is always burning. Light is always there. There's always light. That place of fellowship with God is the place of light. Number one, it is holy. Is the tabernacle holy? You better believe it. You only go into God when He says you go into God, and you never go without blood. He is holy. But does He desire relationship with His people? Yes. He says, light this light because I want you to know me, and I want to know you. So they were kicked out of Eden to the east. And then which way did the entrance to the tabernacle face? It faced east. So you come back into the presence of God by a sacrifice and say, I can know God because He has made a way for me to be in His presence and to experience His light, His holiness and His righteousness, but also more than that, not just merely righteousness, as though that weren't enough. He also wants to know me, and He wants me to know him. Moses would go into the tent of meeting, and then he, from time to time, of course, he would come out. And I love what it says about his little assistant, Joshua. It's the little guy, Joshua. What's it say? Moses would leave. Joshua would stay. 
That presence of God is what the value is. That God, God comes into our darkness in the wilderness and says, I want to know you again in the garden that has been ruined, but I am going to remake it. Remake it. This theme of light continues on through our Older Testament. In 2 Samuel 21, we have a, a story of near tragedy. There was a war again between the Philistines. Okay, boo, come on guys, get involved in the story. I mean, come on, we're having fun. There was war again between the Philistines, and David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines, and David grew weary. Why did David grow weary? Oh, some of you guys know why. He's an old man. I'm not saying who would know why. You can do the same job, it just takes longer and requires a nap. That's all. It's, uh, you can do everything you used to be able to do. It takes longer and requires a nap. So he grew weary, and Ishbi Binob, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze and who was armed with a new sword, fought to kill David. Now, who did, who, what's that description sound like? It sounds like Goliath. Well, David kills giants, right? No, David needs a drink of water. Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, You will no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. So David here is referred to as that light of Israel. He's connected with that work of God to bring his presence to his people. In fact, this is confirmed in God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, where he said, your son will build a temple for me, and his throne will endure forever. So he must have been talking about Solomon, right? Problem is, Solomon died. And Solomon also built a temple, and it is no more. We need a better son than Solomon. We need a son who can build a temple that lasts, and who can have a throne that never ends. And that son was not Solomon. It was partially Solomon, but it was ultimately filled in his son Jesus. So here we have this light from David, the lamp of Israel and David, the recipient of God's covenant promises. This light that says God has made a promise to his people that they will be a blessing and they will experience God's blessing. And this covenant promise is going in and through David's lineage. All right, do we want to talk about some more lights? Of course we do. This is fun. Zechariah chapter 4, one of the weirdest lights in the Bible. Zechariah chapter 4. If you want to read some strange stuff, read Zechariah. It's good reading. It's relatively short. You can read it before the end of this message. If you get bored with me, read Zechariah. The angel who talked with me came again and he woke me up like a man who was awakened out of a sleep. I don't, don't know how else you are, but anyway. He said to me, what do you see? And I said, I behold a lampstand all gold, with a bowl on top of it, and seven lamps on it, and with seven uh, lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it, and there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl, excuse me, another on its left. And I said to the angel, what are these? And the angel, who was talking with me, answered and said, you don't know what these are? No, my Lord. And he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid 
shouts of grace, grace to it. Keeping going in verse uh, 8 of Zechariah 4. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundations of his house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts says, sent me to you. Whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Almost done. Here we go. We're going to finish up the chapter. Are you ready? I'll start over if you're not ready. These seven eyes are of the Lord, which range throughout the whole earth. Then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right and left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, what are these two branches which are beside the two golden pipes from which golden oil is poured out? And he said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no. He said, these are the two anointed ones who stand before the Lord of the whole earth. So we have this scene of this lampstand, which looks just like the lampstand that is in the tabernacle. And how do you keep a lampstand fueled in the tabernacle? You tell one of the sons of Aaron to get the bucket of oil out and fill the thing up. And when do you let the thing get empty? Never. What would be great is if we had a lampstand that never ran out of oil. So here we have a lampstand connected to the olive tree. Now, that seems a little bit strange. Well, how does the oil cut? Don't worry, it's a vision, okay? The idea here is a lampstand that never goes out. A lamp that never goes out. And it's referred to here as the branch. And that is all throughout your Old Testament. Isaiah and Zechariah, the branch refers to that son of David who will come again. So what we see here is this promise. We want a lamp that provides light that never goes out. A righteousness and holiness and and relationship with God that never ends. And that comes from the branch, the son of David who is yet to come. This priest and king who will bring his people into right relationship with God. Now, you've probably already figured out who that is. Like we said last week, it's the only thing some of you learned. In church, the right answer is always Jesus. But that is exactly who it is, and we we read it a little bit last week in John chapter 1. It's worth being reminded of what we read last week, as now we have thought about the light throughout the Old Testament. In Him, Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. A lamp in a tabernacle is good, but it's got to be filled with oil. And that lamp of Zechariah is good, but I don't know how you connect a lamp to an olive tree. What we need is a light that provides us holiness and righteousness and relationship with God that never goes out. And that light provided to us is Jesus. Jesus is the light that there can be forgiveness of sin and fellowship with God through faith in Him. John also repeated the same message over in 1 John chapter 1 beginning in verse 5. Am I reading too much scripture for you today? Because I don't care. I'm going <laughs> to, I just want to find out. That's terrible. That's just rude. Why would you say that? First John chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him, that is Jesus. And we proclaim it to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while walking in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light 
as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Do you see the two things there about the light? Fellowship and righteousness. Light is where we know and are known, and we are made righteous. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. However, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His Word is not in us. Jesus is the light. He is the one who can make us righteous so we can have a relationship with God. He is the one who can make us righteous so we can have a relationship with one another. One of the most challenging things about knowing other people is they are sinners. And as one author has said, there is nothing more annoying in all of the earth than someone who sins differently than you. The way we have fellowship with God and the way we have fellowship with one another is in the light. This is not a bunch of people acting like they don't sin. This is a bunch of people who understand their sin has been paid for and so can know and be known by one another because God's grace is sufficient. As a body of believers, we don't need each other to be perfect. We need each other to know Jesus. We need to extend to one another the grace that Jesus has extended to each of us. That's how we live in the light. We don't live in the light when we pretend we don't sin. We live in the light when we experience grace with one another. All right, last passage in this section, Revelation chapter 22. As soon as you say Revelation, everybody gets excited. How many verses? I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 5. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anyone accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face. His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. There will be no uh, light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. A couple of things about this river. First thing I wonder about this river, how do you cross the street? I mean, it's flowing right down through the middle of the river. Are there bridges? Don't you wonder these things when you're reading your Bible? You have this, this street, and there's a river flowing down the middle of it. And what if the coffee shop you want to go to is on the other side of the street? So then I wonder, are you allowed to swim in this river? Like, can you wade across? Or I don't know. See, I can tell you've never asked yourself these important <laughs> theological questions. I wonder in this, in this uh, how are you going to cross the street? But we'll be in heaven. Maybe we'll be able to fly or jump really far. Uh, I don't know. But here's the thing. We started in the Garden of Eden, and we moved into darkness. We got kicked out. And then all throughout the story, God has been telling us, here's where light is. Here's where relationship with God and man is. Here's where righteousness is. And each of these lights were a little bit, just a, a sort of a foreshadowing. It's, it's, the, it's the, the little teeny flashlight in comparison with the sun. And then we find Jesus, and we find salvation, and now our hope is in the light. But even today, as we're sitting here today, we don't see it yet. 
And here in Revelation 22, we say, on that day, no need for a silly lamp, no need for even two olive trees in a lamp, we have the sun. We have holiness and righteousness. We have the ability to know God and to be known by God in the warmth of His light for all of eternity, and that is our hope, that we would find the light in the darkness, that we might enjoy His glory forever. The light of God shines from Genesis to Revelation in Jesus Christ. The problem is, those who have the most light to see are often those who completely miss the point. And that's what we see in the story of the Magi. Matthew chapter 2. Aren't you glad we finally made it to the passage we're going to look at today? So now the message will begin. That was the introduction. I'm kidding mostly. What we see in this account, these wise men are contrasted and compared with Herod and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We might say it this way, the Magi had much less light. We don't know where they got the information, but the people of Israel had been scattered throughout the known world at that time, so it's likely they had access to some of the scriptures of the people of Israel, but we have no idea how much. We, had, we have no idea what information they had, The one thing we do know is they saw a star in the sky, and they said, that is the king of the Jews' star. I think we should go where that thing is. So here you have the people of Israel who should have had all of the understanding of what was going on, and they were completely missing the point. And here you have these magi from the east who had what appears to be very little information, maybe a few uh, scraps of Hebrew text and a star in the sky, and they said, that's where hope is. We need to go there. Those who have, should have seen most clearly didn't, while those who were in the dark saw the light most clearly. God here takes the initiative, and He comes to those who find themselves in the dark. The wise men saw this star, this small light in a black sky, and they followed it. I don't know what Scripture they had, but maybe they had Numbers 24, 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down the sons of Sheth. Balaam, for all of his terribleness, God used him nonetheless to give us this prophecy which indicates that a star will come out of Jacob. And here we have the Magi with with maybe this text and, and a few other texts, and they said, we see a star rising, and this is the star of the king of the Jews, and they believed and took action based on their faith. Herod and the religious leaders, on the other hand, had all of the information. They would have had all of the texts, and they would have been reading and studying the texts over time. How do we know they had the information? When the Magi showed up and asked, where is the king of the Jews to be born? What was their answer? Bethlehem, because they knew Micah chapter 5. They had read it. They knew all about it. So here's these Magi that show up and say, we've seen a star. We've got a couple of scraps of scripture. We think the king of the Jews is here. And Herod and the religious leaders know exactly where the king of the Jews is to be born, and they can't be bothered to make the short walk from Jerusalem down to Bethlehem. In fact, their response is different than the Magi. 
The Magi came because they wanted to worship the king of the Jews. Herod and the religious leaders, it tells us in Matthew chapter 5, were what? Disturbed. The king of the Jews has been born. Nothing is no more frustrating when you are a political and religious leader than for the king, Messiah, creator of the universe, to show up. He sort of ruins your plan to have the power and the religious pull when the king shows up. And they were disturbed. And Herod, of course, tells the Magi, go and find him, then return to me that I might worship him. Here we have the first documented use of finger quotes, worship him. That's what Herod did. That's how they kind of knew, I don't think he really wants to worship him. I'm kidding. I have no idea if he did the finger quotes thing. And the Magi wanted to worship him. I love this. 1 Kings chapter 8. Did I tell you I was done looking at Old Testament passages? 1 Kings chapter 8. This is the middle of the prayer of Solomon. Solomon had built a pretty nice temple from what I understand. I don't know how you get insurance on that thing. It's completely covered in gold. He had built this temple and now he was praying. And most of his prayer was about his people, the people of Israel. And his prayer was about the people of Israel saying, uh, listen, when, when the people of Israel sin and then they go into war and they get defeated and they pray toward this temple, God, we pray, I, I, would, I would ask that you would hear their prayer, offer them forgiveness that they might have victor- victory over their enemies. He includes then in 1 Kings chapter 8, beginning verse 41, this prayer to God about his temple. And we, we must not miss how scandalous this might have been. If he, if he wasn't King Solomon, somebody might have pulled rank on him. But here's what he prays. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your namesake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. They're going to hear all about it. When he comes and prays toward this house, may he first follow the law, may he get circumcised, may he put on Jewish garb, may he be anointed with oil, may he stop saying naughty words, and then maybe God, if he's a really, really good Gentile, maybe you'll hear him. Yeah, that, I don't know if you noticed, but I added something. What does it say? This is unbelievable. When he prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name, fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. Here is Solomon praying that everyone, not just Israel, would find the light of God through his temple. Jesus then says to the religious leaders later in his life, I'm going to tear this temple down. It's a new one built by King Herod, not nearly as nice as Solomon. Still pretty nice, not nearly as much gold. Jesus, I'm going to tear that temple down and build a new one in three days. And they killed him for it. Solomon understood it. God has brought his light for people in the dark. And that's who the Magi were living somewhere off in the east, who knows exactly where, maybe in modern-day Iran, maybe in modern-day Iraq. Uh, it's hard to know exactly where they might have been from because they were just from the east. But in the, in the darkness, out east, again, which way did we get kicked out of the Garden of Eden? East of Eden. 
they find the light, just this little star in the inky blackness of night, and they say, that is where hope is, and they find the Messiah, and they worship him. And here are the religious leaders basking in the light of Scripture and Jewish tradition, and they can't find their nose on their face. Light in the dark. God invades the darkness. They provide to Jesus gifts. These are gifts of royalty. They are recognizing that this is the branch of Isaiah, that this is the lamp of Leviticus, that this is the lamp of David. He is born king, the Magi said. He is not appointed king. He was not elected king. He is born king. His throne is the throne of David. His throne is the throne of Solomon. His throne from Zechariah is the throne of Zerubbabel. Jesus has invaded the darkness at his initiative, and those in the dark will see him because he is the light. Unfortunately, those of us who have way more information oftentimes completely miss him. What does Jesus offer? Forgiveness of sin. The light of righteousness. How could Jesus offer that? When you went into the tabernacle, you couldn't enter in without blood. So we have to go into the presence of God with blood. Whose blood do we go in with? We go in with Jesus' blood. The book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 10 tells us we walk through a curtain just like the priest would have done in the tabernacle. But the curtain we walk through is not a fabric curtain. The book of Hebrews tells us the curtain is the flesh of of the Son. We walk through the curtain of Jesus' body, receiving on himself the punishment for our sin. And having walked through the curtain of Jesus' sacrifice, the Bible tells us in Hebrews to do what? Boldly go into the throne room of grace. We don't have to go in bashfully. We don't have to go in shaking and quivering. We have been made righteous, and God desires a relationship with us where we know him, and he knows us, and we have relationship in the light, not hidden in the dark. It's a relationship of righteousness and holiness and being known, and it's all paid for by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and all can participate who will trust him. All can participate who will see the light. The Bible gives us maybe a couple of different things we could think about, and we'll prepare to take communion as we think about these things. Uh, Number one, we might think about purpose. Since God is light in the dark, God's light of Jesus has purpose. And the purpose of Jesus being light for us is to bring God glory by giving us holiness and fellowship with God through faith in Jesus our Savior. We have purpose, and our purpose becomes glorifying God by having holiness and fellowship with God through Jesus our Savior, through faith alone. That is our purpose, to worship God and glorifying Him by becoming holy in Jesus and having relationship with God through Jesus. It's our purpose. Why am I saying that over and over again? Some of you are looking for something better. Like there's a lot of purposes, and the Bible gives us purpose to know God and have holiness and righteousness in Him forever. And, we're, and, mo, and a lot of us, I won't, none, of, none of you here, everybody in the first service, right? 
I want that, but there's a whole lot of other stuff I really want. So what I want is all the stuff I really want with Jesus. That's what I want. That's what the religious leaders wanted. They wanted political power, they wanted religious power, and they wanted the Messiah to show up and give them just the extra little pump, you know, punch they needed. And Jesus says, no, 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 I'm just your purpose. One of the hard things about Jesus is he's all we need. How could that be possible? I remember uh, an account in the Old Testament, King Solomon had a visitor, the Queen of Sheba. Do you remember this? It's told twice, once in Kings and once in Chronicles. And she shows up with a whole bunch of stuff. She's basically going to set up a trade alliance with Solomon. And she shows up, and this is what the Bible says. She saw his, uh, the, the, the garb of his attendants. He saw the laying out of the table. He saw the food he prepared. He saw the manner in which his servants operated. And the, and the Bible says this about her. He said, everything that was said about you was true. In fact, they didn't tell me half of it. And, and here's, it, the word is strange that describes her reaction. Her breath was taken away. She would have gasped. And here's what she says. It's really interesting. She says this, how fortunate are your men who get to stand in your presence? So she saw all this laid out, and the queen of a, a country of North Africa looked at a guy whose job it was to stand next to a pillar in Solomon's house and said, that guy has a great job. He gets to stand in Solomon's temple, just hang out with this guy? Man, that would be awesome. And she's a queen. You would think she has like all the TVs she wants. And This is what we forget. We think Jesus is great, but there's, there's got to be something more. Jesus is better than Solomon by a whole lot. If our whole life and all of eternity was just to stand next to him, we, get, we don't understand it now. If the whole job was just to stand next to him, we'd be okay with that. And we'd be more than okay with that. Our purpose is to receive the light of Christ by faith and glorify God through being made righteous by Jesus and enjoying relationship with God forever. Second thing is humility. We don't need to know everything to find Jesus. We just need to recognize we need him. We don't need to know everything to find Jesus. We just need to recognize we need him. To bring his light into our life, that's his purpose, and that we might show his light to those who are in the dark. If we had to choose between understanding our need of Jesus and knowing lots of stuff in wisdom, we should choose to just understand how much we need him. That is better by far. I'm not saying we should be ignorant. I'm not saying we shouldn't be knowledgeable. But the better of the two, knowledge or understanding how much we need Jesus, understanding how much we need Jesus is better by far than all the knowledge in the world. Read Ecclesiastes if you doubt me. False lights. Sometimes we see and recognize that we need light, and we live in the darkness, and we pursue lesser lights, those little flashlights, right? Stuff, relationships, friends, work, religious tradition, personal security, financial security, all of these things are things we seek to, to have some light of hope in our life. I know it's hard, but here's what we need to recognize. Jesus is better than all that stuff. He is a better light 
and we receive him by faith. Let's take a moment and take communion together as a way of expressing in worship how much we uh, love Jesus. We have um, the communion elements here, and uh, why don't we go ahead and open them uh, together now. Uh, what, which one do I say to do first? Do the bread first so you don't spill. Then open the cup. It is interesting as we were talking about the Garden of Eden and about things that we um, eat. In the Bible, Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit and the result was sin and darkness. And then you and I come together and we partake of the body and blood of Jesus as a way of remembering he gives us light. It, it's, he provides more light to us than the darkness garden of the forbidden fruit gave to Adam and Eve. When we take communion together, Jesus commanded us to take communion together, eat the bread and drink the cup as a way of remembering he died for us and we need him. We need Jesus to save our souls, and as Christians, we need Jesus to hold us till the very end. This is a way of saying, I need Jesus as much as I need food. We might say it, I need Jesus more than I need food. The bread, the Bible tells us, is a symbol of Jesus' body, which was broken. He took on his body, the punishment that we should have received because of our sin. And then the, the cup is a symbol of Jesus' shed blood. The Bible tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. The Bible tells us that Jesus purchased his people, the body of Christ, with his blood. And so it's a way of understanding how much we need Jesus and how much he has done for us. What we're going to do to take communion together, I want to have a few minutes of quiet prayer, an opportunity for you in this moment to set your heart and mind on Jesus. If there are things in your life you want to confess before the Lord. This would be a great opportunity to do that in the quietness of your heart and mind. If there are things you want to thank the Lord for, this would be an opportunity to do that. After just a little bit, I will close our time in prayer with a prayer of thanks for the bread uh, and the cup. Then I will read from 1 Corinthians and we'll take the bread and cup together. So let's begin with the time of prayer individually where we sit. Father, we thank you that you are here with us. And because of the work of Jesus, we can have confidence that you are here with us. I would ask God in these moments that you would hear our prayers, not because we deserve to have our prayers heard, but rather you would hear our prayers because Jesus died for sinners like us. For those of us here today, Lord, that have prayed prayers of confession and we are saddled with weights of guilt and shame, I would ask in these moments you would release us of those burdens. 
for those of us who are in times of great trial and suffering and difficulty and are coming to you for relief. Our prayer would be you would hear our prayers. Give us strength to endure. And if it's your will, provide what is needed that the suffering might be ended. Many of us, Lord, by your grace, have experienced great times of blessing and joy with family, friends, and you have provided all that is needed. In fact, you have provided more than we need. We pray, God, in these moments of great blessing that our eyes would not be distracted from the true light that is Jesus. We thank you for this bread which reminds us of Jesus' broken body on the cross. And we're thankful that you have given us this bread as a way of remembering Jesus' sacrifice. And we thank you for this cup reminding us of Jesus' blood poured out for our sin. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's eat and drink together.